I'm making a comparison to sort of frontier development, like the development of the American West. I'm sort of, I'm making that comparison because I'm trying to sort of crystallize the notion that the sheriff isn't in town yet, that the pace of innovation, the pace of development, the pace of that building process is outrunning the ability of the FDA and other regulators to stay on top of the questions that that innovation is raising. And I think that is a big concern right now. Welcome to the Big Unlock podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce a very special guest today, Casey Ross, National Technology Correspondent for Stat News. I must add that I follow Casey's writings very, very closely. And for uh, those of you among my listeners who may not have uh, had the opportunity, I would strongly encourage you to follow his column in uh, Stat News. Casey, thank you so much for setting aside the time and welcome to the show. Hi, Patty. Thanks a lot for having me on. You're welcome. So, Casey, we're going to talk about a couple of reports that you recently published highlighting the possibility of racial bias in uh, some of the FDA-approved AI-enabled products and devices. For the benefit of our listeners, do you want to unpack that really quickly, and then we'll dive into some of the larger questions that you raise in the in the reports as well. Yeah, sure. So what I did was try to build a database of all the FDA AI cleared algorithms to date, because you know, as a reporter, I'm always getting uh, press releases from companies talking about the clearances that they've gained from the FDA, but there's no real systematic way to take a look at those products. There's no database that identifies them to look in totality about what's been approved. And then I took it a step further after identifying the the, uh, products, going through and looking at the level of validation that was done on them. What was the size of the validation sets? What were the methods used? What's in those data sets? How diverse are they by race, by gender? Where were the data sets gained to get a sense of what level of information was disclosed, what's publicly available? And what I found was that there's it's really all over the map in terms of uh, the sample sizes that are used to validate these AI algorithms. And there's also really very little information about the demographics of the data sets in a way that raises questions about the ability of these products to generalize across populations. And I found that variation happening even within products that are designed to do the the same thing, like assess patients for intracranial hemorrhage or stroke, or even things like uh, breast cancer. So what kind of products are we talking about here? Are these medical devices, software products, and how many of them did you really scrutinize? So the category is sort of software as a medical device. So Uh these are used as mainly as decision support tools that supply uh, data to physicians on patients that helps them make decisions, helps them diagnose and treat those patients. 
there were 161 products that I identified within specific product codes. You can search the FDA's sort of databases to try to sort of find these and figure out what validation was done on them. I've read medical studies that suggest there's up to 220 of these products. And these are all deep learning AI products. So it's machine learning technology, which have all been sort of approved. And we see a vast amount of innovation going on in that area over the past six years. So your reports, and I read through them, you focus a little bit on the breast cancer related products. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was an area where I'm especially interested in looking at those products because diversity really matters, because breast cancer varies so widely among patients. And it's particularly important to have diversity in those data sets so that any AI system that might be advising a doctor, a physician on how to care for these patients sees enough patients so that it can give good advice, so that its conclusions are generalizable to broader populations of patients. What we've seen over time with a lot of medical products and algorithms uh, that have made their way into the market is that, in fact, they're not tested on diverse groups of people. And instead, their recommendations, their reliability mainly only exists within European Caucasian populations, which shouldn't be acceptable to patients or medical providers. So from what I picked up from your reporting was that there is reason to be concerned about the lack of a standardized validation process and a lack of disclosure specifically around the data sets being used to develop these algorithms and because of this lightness, if you will, in the process involved, there is real potential for racial discrimination. And that's what your uh, your investigation into the breast cancer algorithms came up with. Am I reading you correctly? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's the lack of standards there and in particular disclosure of the contents of the data sets is is troubling from that point of view. So let's kind of take this up one notch higher and look at AI-enabled applications and products in general today. Based on all the reporting that you do and all the all the people you talk to, do you think the challenge lies in the quality of the data or maybe even the sufficiency of the data, or is it more to do with the deficiencies in the algorithms, or is it both? You know, I think the biggest issue is the quality of the data and the access to the data such that you can have really truly representative data across populations and have enough of it to be able to train an algorithm to adequately perform the task you're asking it to perform. I think that's really the issue. I mean, there have been some studies done that suggest that the vast majority of data that supplied for AI uh, research comes from institutions in three states, in California, New York, and Massachusetts. That's missing a huge part of the country. The places that we sit in now So many people in so many communities end up getting excluded from that. I think that's a major hole right now that this ecosystem needs to figure out how to remedy. Yeah, and I can can understand why that would be a problem. Just as a personal anecdote, I've never been uh, motivated enough to take the, let's say, the 23andMe genetic test because I am aware that the ethnicity that I belong to is significantly underrepresented. And uh, so I really don't know 
whether we're going to get meaningful conclusions out of it. So I can see how this kind of limitation that the vast majority of the data sets come from three states can be a challenge. And you actually make a, a very provocative statement right at the beginning of one of your reports. You say that AI is now a lawless frontier in medicine. Now, I can see how some people might say maybe it's just a little bit harsh, perhaps, because AI has had some success in other areas in healthcare, administrative functions, like revenue cycle operations, claim management, you know, fraud and abuse, those kinds of things or even in uh, chronic disease management in the population health context where there has been some reasonable success. So what would you say to those who feel that maybe it's a little bit uh, harsh? Yeah, I'm making a comparison to sort of frontier development, like the development of the American West. I'm sort of, I'm making that comparison because I'm trying to sort of crystallize the notion that the sheriff isn't in town yet that the pace of innovation, the pace of development, the pace of that building process is outrunning the ability of the FDA and other regulators to stay on top of the questions that that innovation is raising. And I think that is a big concern right now. I think the FDA is trying very hard, but I think it's under-resourced and it can't keep up with the very important questions that this is raising. Now, the other part of that metaphor that is worth diving into is, okay, well, does that mean that there are a bunch of bandits out there that are a bunch of evildoers that are trying to gather data and do bad things with it? And I would say, by and large, from the companies and the people that I've talked to, I would say no. I would say that they're very, most of them are very well-meaning and altruistic, but there is still the issue of unintended consequences that may arise from the use of products that are not fully and carefully vetted. And I think once that the process begins to fully mature and catch up with the innovation, I think everyone will be better for it. Yeah, and I can't help but uh, extrapolate that and make a comparison to the broader debate that is going on right now about uh, the use of data, especially in the context of big tech and how that could potentially uh, be harming certain types of people, uh, especially if their data is being harnessed and uh, and harvested in a way that they're not even aware of. I can fully understand how the frontier analogy and the metaphor uh, would be very applicable. And I do accept the point that you know, most of the people that I talk to are also very well-meaning. Now, you made a comment a little bit earlier about there not being enough data available to do a rigorous training of the algorithms. That's obviously at the core of how you really get to uh, highly efficient and accurate algorithms. And it's ironic, uh, your report refers to breast cancer and this in the analysis of images. And my understanding is that there's a vast amount of data available in the form of images, more so than in other forms of healthcare data. So if this is the state of affairs with regards to the one type of data that is significantly you know, in large amounts available, what does it say about the rest of the data and what we can do with it, especially data sitting in EHR systems, for instance, in hospitals? Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to for researchers to come by to aggregate that data to do anything meaningful with it. EHR data is, you know, I think notoriously siloed and kept in environments where it's just very difficult to access the data and make use of it for meaningful 
research and purposes that could really benefit people. And so I think it's, yeah, it's just very difficult to harness that data, even though there is so much of it. And with regard to the imaging data, I think a big question for the industry and a big problem right now, generally speaking, is is the issue of transparency and saying, okay, I've gone out and I've validated my product and I've studied it on hundreds of thousands of patients all over the world. Well, okay, you can make that statement, but tell me, show me, where? Where are those data sets from? What is in them? We need to know the ingredients of these algorithms. We need to know who these people are, where they come from. We don't need to know their identities. I don't mean to suggest that, but we need to know how these algorithms are being built on what data so that there can be some confidence in these products that they can generalize and do what the developers intend. The related question that obviously arises as a consequence of all that you just pointed out, Casey, is the ethical use of data. In other words, even if the data is available, what can and should you be doing with the data and how do you apply the insights that you gain from this data in ethical ways in medicine? And this has been kind of top of mind for a few years because this, the potential for abuse, misuse is so, is so strong. There's a lot of unintended consequences we've seen. An example of that is the facial recognition algorithms that were consistently misclassifying certain ethnicities and so on. So where's the balance here? What are you hearing from policymakers and and industry executives, especially tech firms, on how they're wrestling with it and how they're moving forward with this? Well, it's been very interesting to see over the past, I'd say, you know, six months or so, a lot of companies are realizing that this is an issue and they're bringing it out into the light and wanting to talk about it at industry conferences and such, you know, on virtual gatherings and so forth to be able to sort of set forth, okay, well, you know what, this is an issue for us in terms of optics. We want to be inclusive companies. We want to emphasize that. And you're seeing a lot of those companies fund research, uh, hold events to talk about it. But there isn't yet um, sort of a consensus that emerged on the best way to accomplish this. What are the set of practices that ought to be used to ensure that these products are inclusive and don't unintentionally discriminate against certain groups. So I think there's there's kind of a recognition that these issues need to be addressed, but how to do that really hasn't been agreed upon, that there really aren't any clear best practice standards uh, that have been identified. There's just, I think, a process that's beginning to really uh, confront those issues. Is this a question for the FDA or is this more for the industry to self-regulate and self-govern and come up with the best practices and hope that uh, the outcomes are are good. What is your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, that's really the big question right now. Whose responsibility is that? Where should that vetting process take place? Should it take place at the FDA before these products get onto the market? That's not happening right now. Some of the people I've talked to at executives of companies say, well, you know, The FDA clearance, the 510K clearance that's granted to most of these products has never really filled that role for any kind of product. So usually what happens is, you know, there are follow-up studies done at conferences and by clients of these products to bear out their efficacy. And there's a sort of a process that, that takes place 
normally in the private market to sort of to verify that these products ensure that they're the best things for patients because the responsibility lies on the health systems to adopt products that are really going to benefit their, the people that they're taking care of. But with these products, the question for me arises, well, it's the data is the ingredient. Like that's the main thing that these products use in order to deliver services to help inform physicians to provide care to patients. You wouldn't say to somebody, well, um, you should just take this drug. Don't worry about it. We don't need to talk about the ingredients or where it came from or, you know, what's in it. Just just get take it, okay? You know, it's fine. You would tell them the ingredients. It would be studied rigorously. You would know who's in those validation data sets. You would be able to analyze it in all the different cohorts and how it affects different racial subgroups. That's done now in public at the FDA for drugs. Now, drugs have a different risk profile, sure, than decision support AI, but Uh I don't think that necessarily means that the data analysis should be any less rigorous or certainly any less transparent. That's a fair point. And let me go back to the earlier earlier comment you made about the lack of data, especially EHR data that is sitting in siloed enterprise data centers. We've recently seen some initiatives, especially the one by a number of health systems to come together and form this company called Traveda that is going to pull patient data from a number of leading health systems and use the data to analyze it for uh, insights and help improve health ID outcomes or healthcare outcomes, I mean to say. And there are also some other initiatives like the synthetic data challenge that the ONC has come up with. All of that addresses is looking to address the same problem is there isn't enough data for us to really analyze, train our algorithms and come up with some kind of uh, heuristics or benchmarks for us to you know, drive outcomes. Would you care to comment on these initiatives? And uh, is that an alternative? Is this a viable alternative that is taking shape, you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a timely question. As a matter of fact, I've been talking to the executives and stakeholders that founded Truveta over the past week or so to talk to them about that initiative, because I, I think it is so interesting in something that the industry by and large has just failed to do to date, and that is aggregate a large amount of data that comes from health systems all over the country and, and not just health systems that are on the coast. Those 14 health systems that are gathered in Truveta represent patients who are spread throughout 40 states all over the country. And so I think that's really exciting and potentially provides a really great resource that researchers can tap to be able to gain access to large amounts of representative patient data. You know, there still are a lot of questions, though, with that, because we all know about controversies that have arisen from, say, a given hospital system working with a tech company and sharing their data with that tech mm-hmm. company because of the, all the privacy questions and questions of economic sort of exploitation that might arise from that. So there is a question embedded in all of this, too. It's like, so you're, you're using data from the patients that got care at your institution, and then you're selling that data to another entity to do research on it to build a product that that entity will profit from, not necessarily the patient. So there are issues of consent that get raised in that. And I don't have the answers to those. I think they're very complicated questions. 
but they're questions that should be raised and talked about so that there can be some kind of a, a consensus or at least an open public discussion about how to get access to that data, who does it benefit, how to do this in a way that respects the patients and all the stakeholders. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because I looked at the press release and read through it a couple of times. The one thing that struck me the most was how many times the word ethics came up in that press release. And uh, one of the quotes was also uh, tellingly from uh, from the VP of data ethics or some title like that in one of the health systems. So I have to believe that this is uppermost in their mind, what you just talked about, Casey. What is the right way to go about doing this in a way that does not compromise our unwritten contract with our patients or taking their data and turning that into a monetizable product? But that's a topic for maybe another conversations. So the title for this podcast, Casey, uh, The Big Unlock, came from the title of my first book, which is titled The Big Unlock, How to Harness Data for Driving Digital Health and Digital Transformation. I wrote this back in 2017, fresh out of my experience with two analytic startups where I had wrestled with some of these data questions, especially the development of algorithms and so on. And three years, four years in, uh, it feels like a lot of the things that I talked about in the book have started materializing, but there's a lot of unfinished business. And I want to get your thoughts on some of the big items of unfinished business out there. And I'll throw one out, interoperability. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that topic, but what are the top two or three items of the unfinished agenda, if you will, in harnessing data for us to really, really make a difference in uh, healthcare outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think interoperability is a key issue, and that issue is part of developing data sets at scale, large enough data sets that can be used by researchers, you know, and companies to be able to build meaningful and generalizable AI products that will benefit everybody. And I think the biggest issues in my mind about that are really transparency, disclosure, and some of those regulatory questions. I think it's really important that you know these products, which are machine learning, I think it's important to think about the nature of machine learning. I mean, it's a machine, a computer that is able to comb the contours of a data set to form conclusions on its own without being explicitly sort of programmed. And I think when you have a system like that, where it might be somewhat of a black box about how it's reaching the conclusions that it is, it's especially important for people to know what is going into those training sets. How is it being tested? On what data is it being validated? Are these things at the end of the day going to improve care or are they just going to layer on top of care an additional level of cost without providing the benefit that they advertise. And I think that that process just has to unfold in a meaningful way so that we have, before we start paying for these things, before they get in the, into the market and start um, providing care for people, we need to know that they're fair. We need to know that they're safe. We need to know that there stands some chance of actually improving care to people. So I think those are the things that sort of need to be front and center questions that are addressed over the next few years. So if I were to sum it up in one word, would that be transparency? I would say that would be the word I would choose as the one word that the industry needs to sort of focus on in the next um, couple of years. Yeah. Well, 
I guess uh, we'll have to leave it on that uh, really positive note. Really, thank you so much for, you know, bringing up all of the questions and all of the super in-depth analysis and reporting that you do, Casey. And I have to say that I'm a big fan of your uh, column. I continue to follow it. Uh, once again, thanks for joining us on this podcast and uh, we'll stay in touch. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely, Patty. It's been a real pleasure to be on with you. So thanks so much for inviting me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partner, Powbox. Secure email for modern healthcare right out of the box.